for another episode of the Southwest Climate Podcast. As always, the indomitable Mike Crimmins. Mike? Hey, Zach. How you feeling? This is the social distancing edition. The social, that's right. Yeah. We are at opposite ends of the table. Because, right. Uh, <clears throat> because you didn't shower today. Hey, you shouldn't necessarily make light of this. It seems like if trends continue, uh, we might have to do this on Zoom in, I mean, in a month. We, we could, and then I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't have to shower then. We could just do this from home, actually. That's a good idea. Um, how you been? I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm excited about the continuation of the rain here in southern Arizona, but we've got a fairly complex story to talk about across the West here. It has not been wet everywhere, and it's been kind of a weird winter. But they're all weird, I guess, right? They're all different. They're all different. What's been weird, weird about this for you? Well, is, I, did that sound kind of derogatory? No, no. Like I think weird, weird is good, I think. Okay. Yeah, I, I, that, I didn't mean uh, to. It's interesting. Weird is interesting. I think so too. Yeah, I think that they're all a little bit different. So, so what is what has stood out so far? Um, well, I think the pattern of precipitation has certainly favored Southern Arizona, and I guess we're going to get into the thirty day recap here. But just sort of the the thumbnail sketch across the West has been at least in the last thirty days since our podcast has been the kind of a break point across the Southwest, Southern Arizona, uh, wetter than average, Northern Arizona drier than average, New Mexico doing much better than much of the West. And then we'll have to sort of talk about the broader water situation. But California has been in uh, pretty dire straits um, this winter again. Yeah, I think when you look at the extremes, California in the last three months, maybe even a little bit longer than that, certainly sticks out. I, I believe that they've, in the historical record, which goes back, you know, 120 so years, the last last month and the last three months were the driest. Pretty remarkable considering not too long ago, what, three, four years ago, I mean, that was a pretty epic, epically dry period as well. Well, I mean, just if you think in like the last five, we've had epic snow conditions, Mm. uh, atmospheric rivers to nothing. Yeah, whiplash, climate whiplash. Whiplash whiplash back and forth. I'm looking at some of the climate perspectives here from one of the regional climate centers here. Uh, San Francisco, for the last 30 days, uh, has recorded eight hundredths of an inch. That's the third driest period for the last 30 days. So that would have been like mid-February through mid-March on record. And we can go back down to Tucson, and Tucson has had 0.57 inches, and that's on the 48th percentile. So it's right around median. So quite a gradient from California to the southwest as far as precipitation over the last, well, since November all the way through this last month. Quite a bit of whiplash over the last number of years, but also quite a bit of whiplash within you know the last five or six months. So if you go back to go all the way back to October, um, so just recapping here the how the winters unfold because quite frankly we're pretty close to the end of the winter here, and yeah. at least in the Southwest, maybe not so much up in the high country of Colorado and and uh, in, in Utah, but we're nearing the end of uh, of the winter. I mean the the poppies are out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just in the last couple of weeks, we've really started to see the temperature rise. And, we're, you know, we're at almost at the uh, the equinox. So we're almost getting to half day of sun. And so you can really feel the sun angle coming up. So the temps have gone up. The Interacting with all that soil moisture, we've had quite a bloom of wildflowers across much of Arizona too. So going back uh, October, let's just walk through this a little bit. Dry across the, the Southwest, sort of the hinge line was Northern California, uh, Northern Nevada, and, and and Utah. And it got a sort of nearish average ab- above that, but dry below that. Fast forward a month to November. Uh, November was uh, one of the wetter months that we've experienced in this year, at least. And, and it top 10 percentile. Yeah, with some kind of localized record wettest. 
in northwest Arizona, parts of Utah, and then parts of southeast Arizona. And it flipped, and that was the, the sort of the epicenter, regional epicenter of dry conditions within the Pacific Northwest. Right, right. Okay, so so then another month forward, December. Again, December, November, December were wet in the in the southwest. Yep. November, December were dry in the in Pacific Northwest. Right, so. and so even California started to pick up snowpack, and so California, Intermountain West, and Arizona at least looked pretty good. November into December, we had snowpack conditions that were above average, at least in Arizona. And you think even California had a period there where they had raced out ahead with some of the early season snowpack. New Mexico was a bit dry in December. And then once we moved into January. This is where the the dry conditions started to drip and take hold in in California. This is really kind of a, a broader kind of pattern change and has led into the weather conditions we're even seeing in the Southwest today. So was this a ridging pattern that started basically in mid-January? Yep. So it's been interesting this winter. One of the, if you start to look at the blogs and the discussions around ongoing analysis of this winter, and then now we're starting to do the postmortems, as you're saying, because we're kind of at the end of the season. One of the big defining features of Northern Hemisphere winter this year was a very strong positive Arctic oscillation and no breakdown in the uh, stratospheric polar vortex and a jet stream that was was pretty tight up around the polar regions, right? So that's kind of that reinforcement of keeping the cold air at the poles. Um, a retracted jet, a jet that's strong, the mid-latitude jet is, is being kind of at northern latitudes. <clears throat> One of the expressions of that was this strong ridge in the East Pacific. And so what that has done is it's steered a lot of the storms in the Pacific Northwest and has induced this kind of inland trough in the western U.S. And so on the other side of that ridge- What sort of East, coastal ridge then? Yeah, this coastal ridge, which has then- So if you think of those storms are getting funneled up over across the Pacific Northwest, and on that front side of the ridge, you get this trough that's induced, and these low-pressure systems will wander down the west coast or a little bit inland, and mm-hmm. then they'll bottom out across the southwest. And what has happened is that there's been a lot of moisture in the East Pacific- and so we can even talk a little bit about the El Nino situation. We've had warmer than average conditions across the Eastern Pacific, but they haven't been enough to trigger an actual, it's not a weak El Nino event. And we don't even really see. But that's almost like a little bit of an arbitrary. It's totally arbitrary, right? We have a, a threshold that we use in the temperatures yeah. that distinguishes yeah. it between an El Nino or a neutral. And uh, the difference in a, a, a few tenths of a degree right. could- A binary yeah, could, change. Could make yeah, it an El Nino versus change. neutral, but yeah. practically speaking, it's not all that different. Yeah. And I was reading the, the ENSO blog from climate.gov today, and they had a really nice presentation of the, what it goes through the classification of an El Nino event. And so it's not just the- SSTs, even though that's the quantification of it, uh, in the forecaster's mind, they're going to look for other right. um, patterns. But the point being that there really haven't been any large atmospheric shifts related to El Nino, but what there has been is warmer than average water in the East Pacific, which has also led to above average humidity and atmospheric moisture in the East Pacific. So as these low pressure systems would drop down in the Western U.S., Arizona was in the right spot to pick up moisture from them. And so we've had a number of events in the last three or four months, and especially in the last 30 days, that have been subtropical moisture getting funneled up from the East Pacific as these low pressure systems bottom out in the Southwest. So what that leads to is it leads to Southern Arizona and New Mexico being in that subtropical plume of moisture, 
Northern Arizona doesn't typically see the precip. And so that also leaves California out of play too. Like that is not the, the storm trajectory that you'd need to have those things barrel in and, and clobber the, the Sierra Nevada. And that's actually what's playing out right now. Yep. Uh, and, you know, by the time this pod drops, but it does look like this close low is sort of move across the region and, and, and drop some of that uh, subtropical moisture. It's interesting because this, this pattern is not unusual, but we've had plenty of winters, and this also happened into the spring in, in a lot of years too. You'll see these storm systems bottom out, but they won't have any moisture, and so they'll just be wind. Right, they'll come through, and you'll have a slight temperature change, and then you'll be back to warming up. But this, just having that moisture available, these storms have been able to tap into it and pretty efficiently and regularly give us these warm, wet events. This current event, and it's going to play out even into the pattern of next week, is a little further offshore, and so it actually brought Southern California into the mix this time too, and has been classified as an atmospheric river. So there could be some <laughs> relief for California. Well, Southern California, but Northern California is completely out of play for this this particular event. Again, the trajectory of this storm, the position of the low, the speed of the low has been able to thread the needle across Baja and bring up pretty juicy low-level moisture to record levels into Arizona uh, with this event. I mean, we lump California as one giant state, but I think we should say that the sort of more severe dry conditions have been in the northern it's areas. been northern it's it's been where the snowpack should be accumulating so it's been poor sierras poor the sierra i did we, want to go back to one thing that you said though because yeah. you brought up the arctic oscillation and normally we think of that in terms of temperature here in the southwest but you were actually sort of relating it to the ridge position which obviously has implications for 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 rainfall Are people thinking about the the ao more in more recently in terms of a precip signal? You don't see any correlation. Well, we, you and I have done this before. Yeah. We've had um, years with extreme negative oscillations and extreme positive oscillations and tried to make sense of it for the Southwest, and it's right. a mess. And there's, really not, there's not really any correlation. The eastern U.S., though, I think you can ascribe this winter's temperatures to a positive Arctic oscillation and trend with uh, climate change. Right. You know, it's like those those two things together, and, and most of it is positive AL. Right, this positive year. AL bottles up. The dreaded polar vortex. I'm doing air quotes right now. You can't see that. I like them. You didn't have the tropospheric polar vortex wander around much and make too many incursions. But wouldn't that south. also influence the waviness of the jet and the position Absolutely. of the jet? Absolutely, yeah. And so wouldn't yep. that then also influence the or increase the chances of you know these closed lows or cutoff lows wafting down? Yeah, but I think that I don't – Again, I'm a Maybe. bit out of my lane here, even though it's probably I should. You have a very wide lane. You can have positive AO situations, and given where other standing waves uh, originate in the atmosphere, I mean, we this could have this could have played out differently. I think that you can have positive AO situations where the West goes under a ridge, right, or the whole the whole continental US goes under a ridge. I think this is kind of a unique situation. I don't know what other upstream forcing has caused this particular pattern, but what it, we do see in the pressure pattern is strong, persistent ridge of high pressure over the East Pacific, which at least through the end of January and much of February has led to these this pretty persistent pattern. And again, right. we saw it, the outlooks, 6 to 10 day outlooks and the 8 to 14 day outlooks by Climate Prediction Center had this weird pattern where California was dry and Arizona was above average. You've got to do this weird jet stream pattern to try to weave out a pattern like that. Finish my train of thought as as 
I, I was stepping through the the months, so I just want to finish that because you did sort of describe it quite well, January and February. And both January and February brought warmer conditions to most of California, particularly the northern parts of California. And, you know, in January, it was sort of southern half of, of Arizona was right around its normal precipitation. And, and then February actually brought enhanced wet conditions to southern Arizona, which, which you basically described the pattern for that. What about temperature? Temperatures, just going back over the last 30 days, they've largely followed precipitation. <laughs> so places that have been drier uh, have been warmer and um, places that have been wetter have been cooler. And so there's an interesting pattern across Arizona. So southern Arizona, if you go out to southwest Arizona, it's been quite wet, like in areas like Yuma, which is unusual, right? And it's also, from an agricultural perspective, you do not want it to continuously rain through the winter season because it, it hampers productivity, especially with the the uh, vegetables and the leafy greens. And it also makes things muddy, so it's quite problematic. But it also has been cooler than average because of this recurrent low-level moisture and this sort of stream of clouds coming up from the East Pacific. Higher elevations in northern Arizona was like slightly above average because of just being on the little drier side of these systems coming through. Okay. And so when we look at where we are in terms of the cities at this point, and there's still, you know, a month-ish to go, although we're on the decelerating precipitation limb of the of the winter, if you will. So most of the rainfall is, has has already happened in the southwest. But you know, there's still chances go- going forward. And here in Tucson, we're basically right at average. We're likely going to finish this year above average. It remains to be seen uh, how much. But that's the the situation in in Arizona. So not an extreme winter by any stretch. Likely not going to be one in terms of uh, rainfall, but. Uh, uh, a good one nonetheless. Phoenix, and it's close to average at about four to four and a quarter inches. And this would be October 1st through present. That's right. We yeah. are factoring in, yeah. in October, although yep. nothing happened in October. But right. Really, it started in, in late November. So yeah, we're I'm, I'm looking over the, the October Kind of the water through. year to, to present. So yeah, so close to average in, in, in Phoenix and, you know, Flagstaff. Flagstaff is actually going back a few days, three-ish inches below below average. So flag might come in a little bit behind. It's interesting too, because Flagstaff had a record dry monsoon season and is now headed towards a quite substantial deficit in the wintertime as well. Northern Arizona has, has, had, has a pretty protracted period now where they've been beat up right. from so monsoon into, into winter season now. If the flag area did not get any rain from now going forward until the monsoon period. It'd be about, again, doing math on the fly here, about 80% of average. It's not the worst ever. Put that on top of a historically dry monsoon, and it really puts pressure on the upcoming monsoon. It does, yeah. And the the snow in Flagstaff proper has been about half of what is average for the whole season. So precip has been down. The actual overall, it's been... I think warm. It's a lot of these storms, as, as of late, too, have been high high snow levels. Mm-hmm. So the precip that they've gotten has been not in probably the typical seasonal snow. And again, for Flagstaff proper, I don't know how much that's an issue, but I do think it'll have impacts for some of the reservoirs, the lower elevation reservoirs in that part of the region, like Lake Mary. The higher elevations, though, are still hanging on decently. But again, March 1st is kind of peak snowpack for the Southwest. So we're we're on the, the downward slide for a lot of this. 
as well. So I think we should transition then and talk a little bit about this, uh, the snow situation around the West. I want to make one last point here. I want to highlight how far Southeast Arizona has done precip wise. I'm just going to pull up some rain log reports here. Given the storm track that we've been talking about here, if you go from Sierra Vista to Bisbee to uh, over to like Safford, uh, parts of Southeast Arizona have had three and four inches of rain just in the last 30 days, which is quite substantial. Wilcox, Wilcox is all, what is Wilcox is almost at Almost, right now, it's yeah, 8.7. Almost nine inches are in. Almost and their n- average is a little under six. Yeah. So, so almost 150% of average. Nine inches of rain since October 1st. And all of that has come since mid-November. Lot, um, you know, over what? Almost four and a half inches in November proper. But then real decent, consistent rains. Well, that's of, the thing. It's been consistent. There's, yeah. you know, in, in the beginning of the season, there was a few larger storms, but basically beginning in December, there's been a steady flux of yeah. uh, kind of small, small precipitation events. So, you know, that, that kind of consistency can make all the difference. You know, even if the totals aren't high, but you just, you know, those consistent pulses of moisture really can do a lot for, for soil moisture. So I think, you know, parts of Southern Arizona are in really good shape. They got mediocre uh, monsoon precipitation and then getting ramped up with that November precip, throwing all that soil moisture into there and then doing this periodic, I think has has been really beneficial for for Southeast Arizona. So has the number of low pressure systems that move through the area, has that been, uh, I know you don't, you haven't looked at this data, um, but maybe use your mental, your your memory here. Mm -hmm. Is it been has anything stuck out to you about the number or the frequency of these events so no there've been some cool papers uh it was one out of university of utah that looked at kind of storm track frequencies and low pressure the southwest has got this is huge bullseye on it i think the fact that so in a normal winter and then as we transition to spring we'll we'll see a lot of these low pressures the fact that they've been capital been able to capitalize on a subtropical tap of moisture has been you know, that that to me is what's stood out. And if you look at some of the data. So is that just, are they able to do that because they're digging further south or they're stronger and therefore they're they're advecting from a further area or what? I why think, is that the case? Well, and just I'm looking at some of the, the reanalysis data here for, uh, this is, I'm looking at precipitable water anomalies in the East Pacific from February to present. And they're substantially above average just off of the coast of Baja, I think the access to the moisture again. I, I mean, it's these are substantial anomalies. I, I don't have a sense of like that. Clearly, that wouldn't be all the time. It wouldn't be an anomaly then at that case. And if we look at relative humidity, specific humidity at kind of mid levels, it's it's above average just south of here. So my my guess is is that that moisture and this is I was trying to make that link. I'm totally baseless, other than this is just observational. Above average. East Pacific sea surface temperatures, they strongly visually correlate with where this above average humidity is in the East, East Pacific. So maybe that's like a connective tissue mm-hmm. here about that. There's just been more East Pacific mo- moisture at this latitude. And so with that storm track, that seems to be what 
these storms are picking up on. And and so again, the background state of the moisture has just been higher for some it, reason. It we, seems we like it. Yeah, can't necessarily attribute that. Although, right, I have a high confidence in your eyeball regressions. Uh, my eyeball regressions are world famous. And um, <laughs> and if you look at the anomaly plots for the uh, geopotential heights, so they'd be just looking at that kind of the average weather map in the middle level of the atmosphere. The only anomalies are in the ridge pattern in the East Pacific. There's not a like a low pressure anomaly over the Southwest, which would mean that it's a it's transitory, right? Is that stuff is moving through quickly, so it doesn't really give you a sense of that frequency if it's being above average or not. To me, it really only stands out as this access to moisture to the south. Okay, before I move on, now can I move on a please to yeah. snowpack? Yeah, let's do it. Not unsurprisingly, the snowpack condition obviously would follow the precipitation, um, and so um, the real the real bummer, uh, as was mentioned earlier, is in the Sierra Nevadas, and there are many of the the station snowtel stations they're reporting below 25 uh, percent of average which is obviously has huge implications for the water supply there for the people that tap into the, the snows but you know when you move so i guess i should say that the the other sort of bleak snowpack situation right now is in in arizona now we don't have a, a lot of snow uh, reporting stations up there but Flagstaff I, looks to be the only region that has above average snowpack. Yeah, headwaters of of the Salt and the Verde are also showing you know less than fifty percent of, uh, of of average. And when you zoom in, Mike, on some of these, you can see that the rainfall hasn't been that much below average, but yeah. the the snow the the water content in the snowpack is much below. And and part of that I think is is these warm storm story yeah. and the and the warmer temperatures. I think it's killed the snowpack from it's eaten it from the bottom up. And so the snowpack is really hanging out at the highest elevations. Uh, I was playing around with our snowview tool. Some colleagues here at University of Arizona built this really nice interface that uses gridded modeled snow water equivalent data. Just looking at the lower Colorado region all elevations snowpack, the what you'd expect is the um, the median snow water equivalent starts to climb in December and peaks in February and then starts to fall. Well, what actually happened was we ended up having a big push and peak in snow water equivalent that was way above median in November. So it was that wet November again, which was some of those storms were quite cold and, and put down quite a bit of snow and especially at the higher elevations. And then it bottomed out in December and then climbed way back up above median in right around New Year's. And then it's just been on this this slow decline and has crossed over to being below median at February 1st. And so all of February, it's been below median. It's not crashed or cratered. It's now kind of following the normal path of decline in snow water equivalent in Arizona right now, but it's, it's below median. But let me just go across some of the numbers. So basin-wide averages, Little Colorado is is coming in at about six, 68% of the long-term average. Salt, uh, 59%. Verde, 70%. Upper Gila, 84%. So those are pretty consistently dry conditions. It's not like it didn't rain or pre- it's well, not like it didn't precipitate, right? This I think is this, snowpack. Yeah. This is where like we're looking at a, a, a map of what basin-wide snow water equivalent. It's got that brown color, but they're like, these basins aren't necessarily dry. No, I think it, 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 it's a little bit misleading, right? We're in this weird kind of, well, I think this is transition. This is the, 
the story that you were just telling about these warmer storms tapping into the subtropical moisture, which brings yeah. with it not only moisture, but also warmer temperatures, it's going to fall, the, that precip is going to fall more as, as rain than snow. So you can have yeah. above average rainfall and below average snowpack, depending on what your temperature conditions are like. Right. And I think at this transition time, when, when snowpack is on the decline anyways, if snow water equivalent is below median, I'm not, I'm not sure how much, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm saying this a lot. How much does that matter? Under a normal, under a median year, we would basically be at peak snow yeah. water equivalent. Yeah. Right now we're close to, we're probably 10, 15% of that. So it's going to melt out maybe a full, the snowpack will be gone and, and at this snowtail station will be gone maybe a full month um, earlier than earlier than normal. Than median, yeah. So that does matter for such things as extending the virus season, increasing evaporation, reducing stream flows. So I don't know, is that a convincing Yeah. I you know again it's these these plot I would I would like to know what the background distribution is. Like I'm looking at this plot. And well, this is median though. It is median, but I bet it's a noisy. I bet it's a noisy distribution to get to that. Like how often does this? It's it's 7,900 feet in March. I would expect that happens quite frequently. Yeah, but it's, it's also I'm totally. Well, <laughs> it with the climate is clearly changed towards warmer, so maybe the expectation for that occurring is is much higher now. Maybe that was, you know, in the sixties, which was very cold and, uh, cold and wet that, that would have been unusual to have it melt out this way. Well, let's look at last year. I'm just going to, cause last year was a pretty snowy winter if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, you're totally right. So on March, on March zero. (laughs) Okay. March 11th, according to this, this would, this would be the uh, snow tilt site. March 11th, 2020, snow water equivalent at Promontory is 1.9 inches. Okay. On March 11th, 2019, snow water equivalent was 12.4. It was 10 times the amount now. And it peaked again. And March 14th, it went up to 14.7. So, okay. I take it back. Well, I don't it's, know. It's I... weird right now. It's it's weird. Yeah. It's well, melted out early. One year might not undermine your, your point, which is that it could be noisy. I Two's mean, better than one. Well. Um, could fit a line through it. Is this year uncharacteristic, unusual? Probably not. See, I think that's the challenge of interpreting Arizona low elevation snow tell sites. I, if we go up to the, the two highest peak ones, they don't have this kind of variability. Well, so now I'm looking at Snow Slide Canyon, which is yeah. Mount Humphreys, yep. right around Mount Humphreys, 9,700 feet. Yeah, that, that station's more like a, like a Rockies that looks pretty good. And when you say pretty good, I mean it's it's 106% of its long-term average right now. So it's it's yeah. it's 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 basically average. So what about Baldy? So I th- I think the that part of the Mogollon is also at average to above average. So well, I mean it, this is the challenge. I mean snow is highly variable in space, you know? And yeah. I mean, we're going to get into this issue of like, we're making these broad statements about snowpack conditions within a whole basin based off of- Isn't it interesting? And we don't or- have that many, we don't have that many snowtail sites. So March 4th, Baldy's um, snow water equivalent was at median. On March 11th, it was 
it was 60% of median. Like something happened in a week where it lost three inches of snow water equivalent. What about was there rain at that time? 9,100 feet? I, yeah, maybe. This is why I don't use snow data. Ah, it's hard. Again, we're just trying to get oh. the big picture. So what's so, the point so, of all so, this? Right. So you, I was making a, a big picture point here. I'm and, sorry. And, I kept going into and, the weeds. And you, uh, you, you helped me. Kept trying to dig snow caves. You threw me off that. I, I don't even remember what my train of thought was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I was going over the, the conditions in different basins in Arizona. And as you go further north, the conditions get a little better. Parts of the upper Colorado River Basin are slightly below average, like the Gunnison uh, and the upper Colorado are, are both around 90% of average. And then further north of that, Yampa and, and, and the Colorado are both slightly above average. The picture across the West is one, again, just to summarize this, the bullseye for, for low snowpack Sierras. Right now, Southern Arizona, you made the point that maybe it doesn't matter all that much that we, we have seen a lot of, uh, of rainfall, so it's not like it's been dry. But as you move further north, upper Colorado River and the Rockies, it's generally been, been about average. So, so I think that that does have implications for streamflow. So let's talk a little bit about streamflow conditions, Mike, because at this time of year, uh, everybody sort of tunes their eye to what the forecasts are for Colorado River. So let's get to that. I just said that it's a mixed bag, some below, some some above average in terms of snowpack for the upper Colorado River. Turns out, however, that the forecast for inflow into Lake Powell is a lot below average. So what they're expecting is somewhere in the vicinity of their best estimate is about 73% of, of average. So one of the questions is, okay, you've got a decently good or at least average snowpack situation, and yet the, the streamflow forecasts are calling for much below average, 73% is much below in my book. How can we reconcile that? This is the forecast issued by the NRCS, right? That's right. The River Forecast Center model is going to ingest their estimates of snowpack, which I think is largely consistent with what we've been describing across the region. Also, the modeled soil moisture for present still shows some deficits as far as the amount of water to reaching saturation in parts of the upper basin. I think that's an input to the model. This would be there's snowpack overlying presumably frozen soil. So as you melt, does that water turn into runoff right. or does it turn into recharging soil moisture? I believe that's that's part of the model. And so there's some pretty large deficits across parts of the upper basin and, and actually the parts of the lower basin as well. And then this other component too is the percent of normal fall precipitation which was, I believe, through November 15th, which was prior <laughs> to the wet spell that came on later in the month, is also quite a bit below average as well. And so there, it seems like those, those two moving parts, I think, are there, giving the forecast models pause. There might actually be a third one too, okay. which is yeah. what comes next. If they're using the seasonal outlooks, the time scale of the seasonal outlook versus some of the short-term products have been at opposite like their signal has been pointing in opposite directions. Yeah. So I would, I would think that that would lead to enormous prediction uncertainty in some of the streamflow forecasts where the antecedent conditions are actually the, the primary driver. 
Right. Well, I, I guess we can say this, though, with, with these forecasts, that we're late enough in the winter where the cone of uncertainty is a lot less than it was before. Oh, yeah. I, I'm sorry. That was what you were trying to explain to me before, is that as you get closer to peak snowpack, you're lock, you've locked in more of what's possible. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely right. Yeah. So where does that leave us then with... In terms of what's how much more is to come? So kind of a March 1st... The upper basin still has the chance to actually get April and May precipitation, which I don't, I don't think that's really incorporated. Right. So, if, so if you if you look at it in terms of their probabilistic forecast, ah, right, 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 right. Okay. So, got it. Okay. So let me see if I can unpack this because these are complicated graphs where they show you the percent of likelihood for different. Is amounts. this going to translate into podcast? What it's telling us is that there's like a there's like around a 25% chance that it would be average or above. So there's a 75% chance that inflow into Lake Powell will be less than average. So the best guess is 73% of average. There is a small chance that it will be 100% or above. Presumably, this kind of information gives the decision maker a lot more flexibility, but it can be quite challenging to to sort through. I think uh, it I think it's interesting to try to reconcile the conditions we're seeing across Southwest, the Intermountain West, with the streamflow forecast. And I th- it'll be really interesting to revisit it next month. Right. Um, let me just let me just run around though uh, to New Mexico because the other big river is the the Rio Grande, and it's a similar picture. Although its best guesses for streamflow there are, are around fifty fifty five percent. So, and that is in part because the San Juan Mountains, which is where its headwaters are, are below average, whereas. Yeah. The Colorado River taps in part into the San Juan Mountains, but also into the the more northern Rockies, which have seen uh, above average snowfall. So point here, I think, is, um, you know, snowpack kind of around average, but stream flows are are below average. That's that's a big take home. There's too many moving parts here. Like, I, I think we're dancing with this idea of, has it been a warm, wet winter or a dry normal temperature winter. It it seems to be temps and snow levels is what I'm struggling with. I think right it's now. been a normal precip winter for but also when it's when the precip has happened has I mean we're again we're we're thinking about this as yeah, you're right. a monolithic yep. um picture, yeah. but the timing matters here. Yeah, I think how it's translated into snow has not been super ideal. Yeah. Right. And these in the latest Tick up and precip has been warm, wet storms. Well, also look at a lot of this. The, the the precipitation came in the early part of the winter, which you know for these sort of mid elevation sites could have already melted out. You know, and, and I think it largely has. Yeah, I think we've seen. But the highest elevation stations are still hanging in there. All right. So when I was thinking about when I was prepping for this and thinking about streamflow, a couple big picture questions that I find interesting came to mind. Right. One of them is, and you know, go back to 2014. I had to look it up because I 2014 is a long time ago. But we did this series, which you can still find on the Clemus website, where we called it 1075, and it was really this uh, semi deep dive into the Colorado River and what would happen when the Colorado River crested that 
threshold of 1075, which is the feet above sea level for Lake Mead, which means at that point when it goes below it, sort of drought or shortage sharing goes into effect. So the policy measures kick in to create forced conservation and that sort of ripples through different sectors and, and, and whatnot. So we did a sort of deep dive asking the question, you know, what happens when we cross this threshold? Because at that point, it seemed pretty imminent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that was 2014. And every single year since then, we've kind of always been hovering around going into shortage declaration. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of still there. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions for me is, and I, I don't know if you have an answer, and I'm not putting you on the spot here, but why haven't we gone in, in, into, why haven't we crossed that threshold? And, you know, I did a cursory look at just the, the rainfall and, and the precipitation. And it's, it's not because it's been copious amounts of, of rainfall over, the, over these intervening seven years. Yeah. We've had periods of good winters and, 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 and dry winters. So it, it's not like we've got a windfall and, and it filled up the, the reservoir. So I, to me, it's a question that we should explore a little bit further. Yeah, and I think teeing up the idea for another um, podcast is definitely the way to go. I mean, like you and I have puzzled over the hydroclimate for almost a decade now, I think, with this podcast. And there have been those moments of Miracle Maze and March Madness. I think we had – there were names for all of the, 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 the late season precip rallies, but I don't think – I think you're right. I don't think they're enough to totally explain away what's been going on. So the newest projections, 24-month study by the Bureau of Reclamation, they look at this and they, and they, and they try to forecast – in a probabilistic way, when reservoir levels in Lake Mead will dip below that 1075. And they've got a, a number of different scenarios as as you kind of have to do. You have to play with, with narratives here. In a more extreme version of this, where they just look at the last 20 years of data and, and, and use that as uh, representative of, of the hydrology, there's a 15% chance of, of Lake Mead dipping below 1075 in 2022. That increases to 45% in 2023 and 54% in 2024. So we don't get to above a coin flip for another four years. Yeah. And then when you do a, 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 lo, a, a less extreme, extreme maybe isn't the right word, but when you use the full records hydrology, which incorporates years that you know, early part of the record where we didn't have the, the warming that we currently have, you know, by 2026, there's only a 42% chance. So again, to me, it's it's like this narrative of we're an impending water shortage. It's obviously a real narrative, but I want to sort of understand like why, to me, I would have thought we would have already already crossed it. Yeah. And there must yeah. be some really good reasons that, that we haven't that are probably in part related to the climate, but probably in part related to a whole bunch of other complicated nuances. Totally. I think all those other moving parts are clearly part of this whole story here that I don't know enough about. But yeah, I think I think doing that 1075 podcast Redux. follow-up, yeah, I think right. is, it's definitely timely. So the other big question, I don't know if you have thoughts on this, and I don't know if we have time to, to talk about it, but the other question is for the Colorado River is, is what's... Uh, What's the future hold in terms of climate? How is climate going to be impacting future stream flows? And there was a really good, what I think is a really good paper that was just published in Science that's got a lot of press. Some of the listeners might might have heard that or or seen um, news releases of it that 
ask the question, well, what's the, what's the warming part of, of Streamflow? Uh, what's the warming signal for changes in Colorado River Streamflow? What's the title you're looking at it? Colorado River flow dwindles as warming-driven loss of reflective snow energizes evaporation. It's a good title. It is a good title. Yeah. It's a statement. It is a statement, yeah. <laughs> this is what's happening. Facts are that over the instrumental record, last hundred and so years, Colorado River stream flow has declined by about 20%. And the question is, what's been contributing to that? Right. What's the climate part of that? Well, it's all climate, the stream flow, the unregulated stream flow would be hydroclimate. It's the precip versus temperature, right? That's right. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. Deconvolving the precip. Yes. Because one of the important parts of this is when we look forward, there's much more consensus around what temperature will do. Modeling consensus, like it's just an easier process to to predict going fewer going into the future than than precipitation. Yeah, it's is. A, it's a it's got baked in forecasting skill because of trend and temperature due to climate change. Right. So understanding what the 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 the, the fingerprint of the temperature is an important. Thing. Yeah, gives you it gives you some something to stand on as far as doing sort of shorter kind of medium range planning. Okay. So years, decades. So I guess the upshot here is that they they were able through a modeling approach and their model like looks. When when they reproduce it and compare it to observations, it's a pretty tight fit. Um, they obviously have to make some assumptions and right. they do some things that they talk about. But they come up with more or less a, a 9.3% reduction in stream flow per s- increase of one degree Celsius. That's right. Yeah. So that's the that's the temperature sen- that's the stream flow sensitivity to temperature. What's really interesting about this paper is that it's it's part of an ongoing discussion in the literature, um, including some colleagues here we at U of A we work with, where doing this attribution exercise has been done largely empirically, just doing some regression modeling, looking at temperature and precipitation, where they they came in here with a um, a more sophisticated approach, especially on the evapotranspiration side, and so instead of using temperature as the component to energize evaporation, they argue that more sophisticated evapotranspiration schemes that really get at the process of what causes evapotranspiration, which is predominantly um, net radiation, that that, once you start to really get at that component, which is also going to be related to albedo and surface albedo and changes in surface albedo with snowpack shrinking, you get a more probably realistic feedback that's going to happen with changes in temperature and changes in ET. Well, you're looking at the driver, you're looking at the process and not just the outcome. Yeah. So temperature-based metrics are, temperature is a, becomes a proxy for net radiation at the surface rather than thinking about net radiation as its own variable. And then using that in a, you know, sophisticated evapotranspiration scheme and then hydrologic modeling scheme. So, right. So this is the key, I think, to this paper. This was what was really insightful to me. It's that it's the change, it's the change in snowpack, yeah. the change in temporal distribution of the snowpack that then drives increased uh, evapotranspiration. Yeah. That like that, then drives right. declines in the actual amount of, of precip that runs off into the rivers. Exactly. So temperature is a proxy for a causal chain that's quite 
sophisticated. And so they kind of, they added links to that chain and then broke them down. And then interestingly, they found estimates that weren't that different than the empirical based, but were a little bit better and a little bit tighter, I think, in the range. Well, to me, it's always more insightful uh, when you can, when you get at the process. Yeah, absolutely. The discussion that had been started, you know, took those kind of first fruits of the analysis, I mean, to your, you know, kind of arguing we were offline is that that was a good way to start the discussion. But this then brings it to the next level and start to break down the pieces and the parts. And it also identifies some of the uncertainty that we really do have to, to nail down to really understand how this is going to change in the future. Uh, the other thing, the other nugget in here is that to come up with with better estimates, you had to look at the monthly patterns of snowpack changes and not lump one winner into a single value because timing matters. And actually, I was thinking about this in terms of the the struggle that you and I have had really in talking about the climate over such a broad broad region is that like it is temporally and spatially quite heterogeneous. And yeah. So, I mean, just even trying to make sense of the current conditions today across the basin is it's kind of a mess. Yeah. You have to, you have to, you have to decompose these things both in time and in space. Yeah. And, and you've, you've seen like, you know, uh, shout out to Connie Woodhouse, our colleague here. She's really started to break some of those um, pieces and parts down on the seasonality in their contribution to some of the stream flow records. And then even, you know, brings them back into the, the paleo record at the same time. Yeah, pretty cool paper. Millie and Dunn, Colorado River flows dwindles as warming-driven loss of reflective snow energizes evaporation. Yeah, and it's got all the citations to the other discussions around that. And so it's it's an interesting string of papers to read to try to understand kind of where what we're thinking as far as these temperature-induced changes on the stream flows. And they do they do have a little bit on this about the future, but we won't we won't get into that. I think the, the, the take-home point here is that the warming does matter and, you know, it's... And it, it's, and it, it relates to snow and <laughs> that snow then drives that ET feedback. And it also, it, it also brings up a lot of kind of juicy questions. It's like, okay, so can the system withstand? We, we, we feel pretty confident, the climate science community feels pretty confident that a one or two degree warming signal will will transpire. And does the system have the ability to accommodate, uh, you know, a 15% reduction in streamflow from that? They're really good questions. And this is actually where it goes back to the Bureau of Rec and those those 24-month studies and the longer studies is there are so many moving parts. And, you know, does that time average 10% per degree C, what does that actually translate into hydroclimate variability? You know, does that, does that scale to a 50% reduction mm. in a string of years or something worse or something that's, you know, kind of novel in the actual hydroclimate time series, but on the time average averages out to being 10%. Those are the things that I think are really yeah. interesting and I don't have a good handle on that. Okay. So I think we've, we've been at this for a while, but we did want to cover one other thing, which is just uh, looking forward to seasonal forecasts. Anything that you want to say about that? I mean, it's been it's been calling for dry conditions uh, for a long time now. For each month, it seems like we've we've looked forward, and it's there's been a, a, a drier signal. It hasn't actually played out in that way. It continues the seasonal forecast for the next three months. It's a dry time for us anyway here in the yeah, Southwest. Yeah, calling for below average rainfall. I'm not sure how much that what that means. The eight the eight to the fourteen day forecast is pretty um, pretty bullish on some some weather coming in. Obviously, in the next we can see out for the next you know, four or five days and, and there is a low moving, moving pass, but longer yeah, than that. You know, the rest of March, it, 
<laughs> looking at all the guidance from the six to ten uh, and some of the weather timescale models all the way out through the eight to fourteen. Anyways, rounding out and the one month outlook from the Climate Prediction Center for for March actually does have the southwest. The one month precipitation outlook has all of Arizona and parts of um, New Mexico in lean towards above average conditions. And that's just this persistent pattern of these storms kind of training through the area. And so it looks like there's a decent chance that we end up above average across much of the Southwest, maybe even the, the Northern part of the state getting in a little bit of action. There's, there's still a little outside of that. It's not quite a, um, as strong a signal in the Northern part of the state. So it does seem to center on Southern Arizona again. And then you shift over to the March, April, May outlook, and it is actually for below average precipitation lean in that direction for all of Arizona and New Mexico. But again, they've been two different forecast signals and the seasonal outlook, the three month outlook has really struggled the whole winter and is lean dry. It has got it right over the Northern parts of the region, but is centered on Southern Arizona and has been, um, I guess it's not direction. so surprising it struggled given that the, it had nothing to latch on. Yeah, it had nothing. Yeah, to latch it, on it really. I mean, in, in the forecast discussions, we're we're pretty honest about that. That the confidence was low. It's interesting that they did paint the southwest, even though there wasn't really nothing to go on. And as the the shorter term outlooks continually pointed in the opposite direction, so that's a tough job. This time last year, people were talking about the poppy apocalypse. That's probably not going to happen. The, the, the are you sure? You don't think it? You think it will happen? I do. I mean, I so I drove not the, in California. That's where. Oh was, yeah, California. Yeah. No, but our our low desert. I so I have uh, I drove out to Yuma two weeks ago, and it's good. Oh, is it? It's amazing. Yeah, yeah the, the, the this the, is a great time. I, yeah. I love this time of year. Yep, and um, our our yard but is. You, totally you remember thought, what it was like in California oh, it was last crazy. year? Yeah, yeah Anza Borrego. I saw the pictures of that, and even the low desert here looked just about the same. It's it's really pretty good in southwest Arizona right now in the low deserts and Picacho Peak is looks like the hills of Ireland right now. So that'll be a place <laughs> to celebrate St. Patrick's Day next week. All right, Mike. Well, uh, hopefully we can do this podcast live uh, uh, in person next next month. If not, we'll we'll zoom in. All right, let's zoom in. Social distancing. <laughs> it's good the social distance from you. <laughs> <laughs> My breath is pretty good. <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, and oh, I said this last uh, uh, time and I'll, I'll say it again. Um, if you have a chance to like us or promote us somehow on, <laughs> how do you do it? Smash that like button. Uh, rating or review on the iTunes store. Yeah. Please do. That would be great. We're trying to spread the word a little bit, given that we are the uh, longest lasting podcast on Southwest climate. Our claim to fame. Our, our only claim to fame. All right. Have a, have a great month. I'm into hydroclimate, man. <laughs> temperature, not an issue. No, I think we should talk about temperature. <laughs> I just didn't do it. I, I, I fumbled that transition. <laughs> <laughs> uh.